I had never, never paid such close attention to Canadian politics. I mean, it was just so intriguing. A big Canadian corporation facing criminal charges for fraud and bribery. The Prime Minister's office lobbying the then Attorney General for a deferred prosecution agreement. A protest from that Attorney General with recorded conversations. Then, the resignation of two cabinet ministers. The resignation of the principal secretary to the prime minister. The early retirement of the clerk of the Privy Council. Finally, the ethic Commissioner ruling that there was undue influence being wielded. I had never paid such a close attention to Canadian politics, and I majored in political science. So this was something uh, to keep me glued um, and reading the paper every morning. All this intrigue within a government, within the same political team. Bullying, name-calling, lying. It was just so astonishing. You can't make things like this up. Of course, that's politics, right? We say it's politics. We expect politics to be kind of dirty. However, in the church, we expect things to be different. We say that Christ is the head of the church. We talk about love and service as part of the church's calling. You wouldn't think there would be a lot of room for selfish pursuits in this place. And yet, and yet, spend any time in any church and you'll realize that the church is also a place where people pursue their own agendas, and build their own little kingdoms. Using the church as a vehicle for selfish ambitions may seem astonishing, but there's really nothing new about it. I mean, it was there from the very beginning. In today's lesson, Jesus makes his third passion prediction. Jesus tells the disciples that he's heading to Jerusalem to die and rise again. But this repeated warning falls on deaf ears. No sooner has he mentioned his death, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are cozying up to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. Teacher, just give us this one wish. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory, they said. Now, just to be clear... The disciples aren't asking for special seats at the next luncheon. They are asking for political appointments, places of honor and power. In ancient Near East culture, that seat on the left or right hand of the ruler, those seats were those with the most honor. In effect, James was asking to be deputy prime minister and John, the minister of finance. They were lobbying for political power. 
Ironic, right? Ironic, because Jesus had just been telling them that his mission, his ministry, will lead to suffering and death. When Jesus asks them if they're able to drink the cup he will drink to share in his baptism, they're still fantasizing about privilege. I mean, they're thinking about coronations and celebrations. They just didn't hear those words about suffering and death. Now, when the word gets out that these two had been secretly lobbying Jesus, this causes a stir among the other disciples. We are told the other disciples got angry with them. Now, maybe, maybe it's because it was just so unexpected, so untoward. Maybe, my suspicions, Maybe they were just angry they got beaten to the punch. I mean, those two were bold. They, they came and asked first. But Jesus turns this turmoil into a teaching moment. Once again, he redefines what it means to be a leader in his community. He asks the disciples to reflect on what they see in the world around them. So how is it with the people you see around you? Rulers lord over their subjects and the great ones are tyrants. The CEO calls in his VP and chews him out for the last quarter's poor performance. The VP takes it on the chin, makes his apologies, and then calls in his underlings and continues this pattern of abuse until all this has cycled all the way down through the company and the janitor comes home and kicks his dog. We are taught that this is leadership. And so our best hope is that we wouldn't be at the bottom, right? Getting the kick. That we would be at the top. But Jesus upends this ideal to promote a different way of behaving. He encourages his followers to aspire to service rather than power. For you, Jesus says, the root, and this is a paraphrase, the root to gaining influence is not taking power. Influence gained through power and control doesn't change society. It doesn't change hearts. I'm calling you to a radically different approach. Be so sacrificially loving that the people around you won't, don't believe, who don't believe what you believe will soon be unable to imagine the place without you. They'll trust you because they see that you're not looking out just for yourselves, but out for them as well. When they voluntarily begin to look up to you because of the attractiveness of your love and service, you'll then have real influence. It will be an influence given to you by others, not taken. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever accepted someone's leadership Because you knew, you trusted, you believed that they were looking out for you. Do others accept your leadership for the very same reason? That you're you're not just there to pursue your own agenda, to fulfill your own personal need, but you're there to care for them? I heard a story about Jeff Torrens, and Jeff was, well, he preached here maybe half a year ago, maybe a little bit longer. 
Um, he works with the Focus Club at TRU. Now, some of the volunteers at the Focus Club were questioning how he was caring for the students that he connected with. He was sacrificing a lot of his time and energy driving those students here and then driving them there. Some thought he was being taken advantage of and asked him why he was doing it. He told them that he realized that, yes, some might be taking advantage of him, but that he was trying to demonstrate God's unconditional love. Now, it was clear to me that the person who was telling me this story has incredible respect for Jeff. She now understands just how much he cares. She recognized the embodiment of God's love in his behavior, and she certainly trusted that he would care for her as well. So how about you? This passage, folks, this is a tough one. I mean, it's tough. And I know it's easy for us sometimes to see Jesus taking aim at people who are completely selfish and completely wrapped up in their own agendas that we can say, well, that's for them, right? What we read about the disciples, it's they're people like you and me, right? People that are trying to follow Jesus, and yet there's part of that old man and old woman at work in them. I mean, here's the assessment. It's a Lent, right? Time we think about what Jesus suffered for us. Do you embody God's love in your leadership? Do you volunteer because you really want to help others? Or because you're more interested in the respect you might gain? How, how much of your service is performed out of a genuine desire to care? And how much is offered just to keep tabs on things or to remain in control? Becoming aware of our own motivations is an important step in embracing Christ's vision. And yet that self-awareness doesn't remedy the situation. I find it interesting that Today's passage is the third time, the third time in Mark that Jesus seeks to correct his followers' understanding of greatness. In chapter 8, he tells us that they have to lose their life to find it. In chapter 9, he tells us that whoever wants to be first must be last. Now he tells us that whoever wishes to become great must learn to be a servant. The fact that Jesus needs to repeat that message again and again and again reveals the resistance inherent in humanity. So is there any hope for reprogramming? Any sort of treatment for that Zebedee DNA? Well, maybe. Jesus tells James and John that they will drink his cup and share in his baptism. Now, every time... Normally, when I read that, I, I think of those words as portents, that they will be crucified. They're ominous words, right? And yet, if you can look at them in the larger context of the story, 
they may also be read as an extraordinary promise. Something along these lines. James and John, you're not always going to be driven by your fears. You won't always be making decisions based on your need for acceptance and security. One day you will also take up your cross and you will receive power to serve me sacrificially. You will be enabled to follow me genuinely. Isn't this the very reason Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem? I mean, he wasn't walking into death just to provide us with another example to give human history another martyr. He was following in obedience to rescue us from our own selfishness, to ransom us from our sin. As we gather weekly in prayer and confession, as we share monthly in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and, well, once a life in baptism, just like James and John, just like those early disciples, we are empowered to follow in Jesus' path and serve in this servant leadership way. I'm not sure I'm the one who should be preaching this message to you. But I'm the one who's been entrusted with this task. I think if you look around this congregation, um, you will see people. You will see people whose, well, if you can imagine us all as sort of a block of marble, who's, whom, people whom God has been chipping away at those rough edges, and you can start perceiving the likeness of Christ in them. You may not be thinking, I can, I can tow this line, I can walk this path. Well, look to Jesus and look at those examples even in our midst. Amen.